You ever have that feeling where you're not sure if you're awake or still dreaming? Well, dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something was actually strange. The idea that has always fascinated me about dreams is everything within that dream is created by your own mind as you experience it. You remember the chance to build cathedrals, entire cities, things that never existed, things that couldn't exist in the real world. Have you ever had a dream, Neil, that you were so sure was real? Once you were able to wake from that dream, how would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? Hello and welcome back to the Lucid Dreaming Podcast, or welcome to the Lucid Dreaming Podcast if it's your first episode. I keep forgetting that new people show up every once in a while, so welcome to you as well. I uh, have today on the podcast Jane Gockenbach, who is a researcher and an author who writes about lucid dreaming and gaming and has done a lot of uh, research in sort of the area surrounds uh, surrounding dreams and games in uh, all sorts of fascinating ways and we get into all of that in uh, all sorts of little ways and I think you will find this enjoyable. Before we get to the interview, I want to share with you something um, that uh, I came across in June. Another lucid dreaming podcast came to my attention and uh, this is not a usual, your your run-of-the-mill standard uh, podcast podcast. Uh, about lucid dreaming or any other kind, uh, as far as I know, and I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I wrote a little thing about it on on the blog uh, back in June, so I'm just going to read it to you right now. It's very short, and here it is. A little over a month ago, a lovely woman wrote to me to tell me she listens to the podcast and finds it inspiring. I get those emails from time to time, and I love getting them. It's a big part of why I'm doing the podcast. Some emails are just the I simply had to write in and tell you how much I enjoy the podcast. Some are that plus a question or comment about lucid dreaming. And every so often I get the, hey, I wanted to let you know about my new site slash blog slash book slash fill in the blank about lucid dreaming. What do you think? This one came with a link to the podcast. There was no, what do you think? Or would you share this on your blog or anything like that? She just said, I decided to start my own podcast about the experience of trying to become a lucid dreamer, to keep, my, to keep my mind on the intention of lucid dreaming, and to keep me from giving up. She has been trying, to one degree or another, over time to lucid dream for around 40 years now, and have yet to succeed. Although unlike the hero of our story, I've had lucid dreams before starting my podcast, I, in large part, also started it for similar reasons, to keep the subject top of mind and to allow me to dive deeper into it. Perhaps it was thinking that the title of the podcast sounded silly to my brain, or perhaps because inundated with a bunch of people's new lucid dreaming things, I didn't check it out right away, but I finally got around to giving it a listen. And not only did the podcast name make perfect sense, I absolutely loved it. This is not your usual lucid dreaming podcast. Not that there is such a thing. There's barely a handful of them. 
it is not some instructional guides or interview type of podcast. It is a strange, absurd, crazy, awesome story we get to tag along for. Our hero, named Prodigal D, is a geek after my own heart and a captivating storyteller whose silliness is only matched by her charm. The whole thing is infinitely endearing and absolutely hilarious. I honestly don't remember the last time I laughed so much listening to a podcast. I can't get enough of it. It is nothing like any lucid dreaming something or other out there, and it might not be everyone's cup of tea, but it is a journey worth going on. So I encourage you to check it out. And uh, the URL is lucidorbust.com, and I will put a link in the show notes. And like, like I say here in my little uh, article about it, it's again, it might not be for everyone, and it is odd and it is strange and in fact it's different than any than most podcasts on any subject that i listen to but it is absolutely awesome and i love it and uh and i hope that there will be more episodes of that podcast as well hint hint so on to today's interview without further ado i give you jane gockenbach so today i have with me jane gockenbach did i say that correctly yes (laughs) <laughs> and um, I, uh, I was very excited to actually have you on, on the Lucid Dreaming podcast because uh, your name has come up uh, in my years of digging into Lucid Dreaming and reading about it and researching. I think uh, um, your book, Control Your Dreams, is one of the first that I've ever purchased. You are a, a, um, an author and co-author of several books, uh, a, a researcher, and uh, can you give us just a brief overview of uh, what it is you do when people ask you what do you do and a little a little bit of your um, your history um i'm actually retiring so oh wow okay. you catch me at the other end let's see our dissertation was on lucid dreaming in 1978 it was the first in um, north america and uh the psycho- psychological elements mm-hmm and then I went on to found and, and edit a newsletter called Lucidity Letter and annual meetings for a society called Lucidity Association for a decade, um, including doing research, edited the book with Stephen, Conscious Mind, Sleeping Brain, did my own book. Um, and then in the mid-1990s, my son got a video game console, and that changed my life. <laughs> Um, and, it, but it, my, my initial interest, other than what the, you know, with his passion about it at, at age eight, my initial interest was I started to read the research and, um, one of the things that was really clear at this point, this was before all the, oh my God, video games cause aggression before all that. Yeah. The other findings was the improvement in spatial skills and in, um, Lucidity research at that point, uh, that's the one thing we were finding was frequent lucid dreamers uh, had superior spatial skills, vestibular systems, the related. Um, and, uh, and so I thought, gee, I wonder if they're having more lucid dreams, if they're improving in the spatial skills. And so I began research and we found that, yes, they do. It's not a hundred percent. Certainly I wouldn't say that's it, play video games in order to have lucid dreams and play video games if they're fun. Um, but there is that. And what is actually more robust is uh, 
that gamers are uh, much more likely to report being able to control their dreams. And that's for very obvious reasons. They're in an artificial environment, usually every day, sometimes several hours a day, often since early childhood. So we're talking 10,000 hours of controlling artificial worlds. So when they come across that in a dream, they just assume that they can take over and do what they need to do. Yeah, fascinating. So I do want to get into the games and uh, and lucid dreaming part because this is definitely for me one of the most interesting uh, things about your work. But I just wanted to briefly go back and, and ask you how you got into lucid dreaming and lucid dreaming research. I mean, what what really? I was in graduate school in the nineteen seventies, and I had uh, done my master's thesis on a feminist topic and was feeling a bit burned out by it. And I was having some dreams, lucid dreams, and um, uh, was reading uh, Red Scott Sparrow's original, his original pamphlet on lucid dreaming, Celia Green's book, Patty Garfield's book, and some stuff on out-of-body experiences, specifically Robert Monroe, and then the near-death stuff. This is all this stuff was coming out in the uh, mid to late 70s. Yeah. Uh, and the, the uh, near-death stuff. And, um, you know, I was having these experiences, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. You know, maybe this is – I just wanted to go a totally different direction from feminism. And so um, the idea was born. Very cool. And I – Became aware of, uh, through Scott Sparrow, of the uh, um, research project that had been done by the Association of Research and Enlightenment, the Edgar Casey people in Virginia Beach, and I was in Richmond, Virginia, and um, doing my, my PhD, and um, they had done a dream project. Henry Reed uh, had supervised it, and... Uh, if you know through conversations with Bob Danny Castle, Henry Reed, Scott Sparrow, they were all lived. Danny Castle was up in Charlottesville. I was in Richmond, and Reed and and Sparrow were down in Virginia Beach. So I was halfway between them, and they all worked together. And so um, I applied for a grant to approach this group that uh, Henry Reed already had a whole month of dream diary recordings from to ask specifically about lucid dreams, and I was awarded a small grant. And, um, you know, I, uh, I then, that was my dissertation population, were these members of the ARE who had participated in this previous study. And so I had reams of data. I was interested primarily in individual differences. Um, and so, uh, for instance, administered the 16PF, got sample lucid dreams, that sort of thing. So anyway, that became my my dissertation. Uh, and I went on to uh, um, begin to, got a job in Pennsylvania at a university and then went on, uh, I guess the first time was to present it at uh, Sleep Research Society, used to have a lot more with dreaming, mm-hmm. and met Stephen LaBerge. And we then started to work together for about the next decade or so until I immigrated. Very cool. Um, so let's let's jump into into the games because uh, it's very interesting. Um, I uh, and and I'm, I have a feeling you you were uh, researching this uh, before it even came on my radar. But um, um, how games affect uh, a consciousness or awareness and attention, and then made the connection, I guess, to to lucid dreams and actually demonstrated how. 
um, hardcore gamers have more uh, more frequent lucid dreams? Yeah, it's not it's not as robust as the control finding. And by by robust, I mean um, sometimes we find the association between gaming and lucidity, and sometimes not as much. Well, it's dream control. Almost every single study I've ever done where I ask about dream control, uh, the superiority among gamers. There's only one study where I didn't find that I was amazed. Right. And I've done probably 20 or 30 studies at this point. And so, uh, so that's very, very robust. And lucidity, you know, is there. Oh, I wanted to show you, read you this one. Shoot, I meant to look it up too. Maybe I can dig it up. It's a great case, and I think you would love it for your um, your audience. And I have the permission of the author. Um, it's a student of mine, and he had had nightmares. One of the major findings that we've had in our um, our research is something called the nightmare protection effect. Mm-hmm. Here it is. Um, and uh, he was writing, my students write little mini essays, you know, for courses. And this is a course on uh, psychology of consciousness. And he, uh, he wrote this essay about how he had been having nightmares um, as a child and um, felt quite victimized by them. And then, uh, you know, uh, basically... I started playing video games, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, what you're, I don't know how old you are, but basically all my students uh, begin, you know, they, as, as my children, you know, they used yeah. to fight over the Nintendo. I mean, you know, <laughs> they play video games. Yeah. So, um, and he talks about how the gaming changed the nightmares. It was classic nightmare protection mm. where he would, mm. before he was victimized by them, they were too frequent. It was really you know, clearly there's something going on in his life. What? I don't know. Although children in general report more nightmares than adults. Um, and uh, and the empowerment of the games and how the nightmares turned into, as I often hear yeah. from my yeah. gamers, they turned to their fun. Um, it's, you know, it's, yeah, there's a monster chasing me. Awesome. You know? <laughs> Having, they uh... turn and fight back. And we've done various studies now confirming the nightmare protection effect. Now it's it's this immediate, you don't feel victimized by the nightmare, but rather empowered by the nightmare, which is, you know, of course, a, a totally different thing. Um, that doesn't mean that, therefore, it's the psychologically healthiest thing to do. I think if you're having nightmares, you kind of got to think about why, right. uh, psychologically speaking, nor does it, it does it necessarily touch on every reason why you can have a nightmare. The most frequent um, nightmare my nightmare, I mean, dream so scary that it wakes you up. Um, it, the most frequent scenario is some kind of chase. And you can't, you know, yeah. you can't uh, escape. Mm-hmm. And so you wake up. Uh, in that scenario, they're empowered. They fight back. They have, uh, you know, all all kinds of, of empowerment that you don't see the normal nightmare sufferer. And so they will say things like, yeah, I have nightmares. Yeah, I have them a lot. Yeah, they're fun. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, and at first we're like, what? You know, and then then as we look more into it, we were able to, to see that. It isn't necessarily that they have fewer. They're probably less likely to call them nightmares. And even if they do call them nightmares, they're more likely to say it's fun. Now, that's in part the control. Yeah. They feel empowered in that environment. And sometimes it's lucidity, yeah. you know, that they know that it's a dream so, and that, 
you know. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about the uh, to get us some clarification about the control because that's interesting on its own. And is it is it generally control whether they're lucid or not, or specifically it, if they're lucid, having no, more control? No, no. Or a control in any sample is orthogonal to lucidity. Right. Okay. Initially, sure. We used to think, well, they they went together. It became very clear. You can control elements of the dream and be clueless about whether or not of you're course. lucid. Yeah. Um, and, the, and and the research is supported that. So sure, sometimes they are, but other times, like there's one famous case that I've I've cited many times, uh, and that was of a young man been playing Halo all day and watching some cartoons, doing some other things. In any case, that night he had a dream and did very went here, went there. Eventually, he was um, in third person, so he's flying behind himself as he was driving a car, and the car got in an accident and exploded into flames. And and so there's him driving the car, and there's him watching. And so the him driving the car started to get out, and then the, watching him thought, hmm, I wonder what it'd be like to die. You don't get this in dreams much, and um, and so he stayed. Um, now when we asked him questions about that dream, I, I assumed it was lucid or, or at least that he felt some control over it. He, he insisted, no, he had no idea that it was a dream. He had, you know, none of, he did, wouldn't necessarily call it a control dream. Um, but if you read the transcript, as you go deeper into the dream, he starts talking about the polygon polygons. It, he oh. thought he was in the <laughs> virtual game. world. Yeah. And of course he felt, well, what it would be like to die? And yeah, yeah, let's do this and let's do that. So we did a study looking at um, when gamers, um, when you game the day before, and we got 180 people who had played video games the day before and had a full night's sleep, which is, of course, necessary, mm-hmm. um, and felt rested. In any case, um, most of the time they do not dream about a game. Um, but... When they do, I'm, I'm saying like 60%, okay? So yeah. the 40% that do something like that, that do dream about gaming, most of those, they think they're in the game. <laughs> and so the whole, it's one of the, that's, that's the reason that this fascinates me is the confusion with reality. That they, um, they get confused. Uh, they don't know, is it a dream? Is it a game? Is it a virtual world? Is it uh, waking reality? In the same way that dream people will talk about they thought it was real and they asked a friend and realized, no, it was just a dream. Or in the dream, you dream you wake up only to wake up to realize that you were dreaming you woke up, false awakenings. That kind of confusion that, of course, in the dream community we're very familiar with has added another dimension with virtual worlds. Um, and initially it was most dramatic with video game players because relative to all the uses of uh, the internet and, and its progeny, um, gaming was the most immersive, the most 3D, the most interactive. Mm-hmm. And so now we're getting the, the actual formal 3D goggles being yep. introduced. They're, they're certainly going to redefine the internet. It's, I just think it's going to increase the confusion over these realities. That could be okay, and it's kind of fun and interesting, and it could be troublesome. Right, but uh, you see, uh, some comments I've seen of yours online, you seem to have sort of predicted that virtual reality is gonna have some kind of effect uh, on, on many things, uh, amongst them uh, dreams and lucid dreams, and 
and in some ways, and I've and I've seen it on on um, loose, uh, on on virtual reality forums on on Reddit and some other places where people just report random lucid dreams. And I think you've done some some kind of a study or at least a survey about the connection between virtual reality and lucidity. Yeah, I had an article in um, uh, Dreaming, the magazine for the International Association for the Study of Dreams, yep. that reported on one of those studies. We did three. Two where we had the Oculus Rift, uh, the developers kit, developers kit two, mm -hmm. did two studies in the lab, and a third one was a survey with um, developers and early adopters. Mm -hmm. There some really interesting anecdotes uh, that are in there, um, and so I, I looked at that one. The studies are very preliminary. Um, there's some methodological issues. I think the only thing I can say at this point, which is kind of interesting, is if you get people, you know, they're not used to, to using VR goggles. At this point, it's still pretty new. And you get them in the lab and you ask them to remember a dream from before the lab. Okay, so mm -hmm. just, they had no exposure to VR. This happened last night, night before, whatever. And then you expose them to these goggles where they're like, whoa, you know, because I mean, the first thing people, they're like, they look all around and they go, wow, and oh my God, it's so real. And, you know, because your entire visual field is replaced. Mm -hmm. um, and then you ask them, after they've been on the goggles, you ask them about this dream that they had before the lab. Okay. That's really important to understand that. Yeah. They're more likely to be confused in their attribution of was it a lucid dream before the lab or not. No confusion about nightmares, no confusion about control, no confusion about the five or six different other dimensions. But lucidity, it's like really easy to destabilize someone's sense of what's real, which of course, you know, we know in psychology. Yeah. And that's yeah. what these goggles are doing. And that's what gaming does. I mean, particularly, um, uh, the work done game transfer phenomenon that they've they've really gone a long way with it. And this is in waking. And of course, one could argue that to some extent, dreaming about games is um, a version of tra of game transfer. But I take it more in the classical dream research uh, perspective. But game transfer is like I had a student who lived in a farm. He was playing a video game all day. And he had to go out and milk the cows. So he went out there and he started trying to push imaginary buttons, <laughs> which didn't work to milk a cow. You know? <laughs> uh, or I had another friend, or my son will say, after he was done playing, I think Grand Theft Auto, one of those. And he says he went into a bank and um, he's scoping out the um, the cameras. Normally he doesn't care where the cameras yeah. are. I mean, it's a really bad experience. Yeah. Yeah, you're, but you've been doing. Or another colleague of mine. I don't know what this gaming stuff's all about. So he forced himself and he played. I guess it was Grand Theft Auto again for several hours. Then I got in his car and he's driving across town and he said I had these impulses to run people down. <laughs> Uh, well, me, me and the uh, me and the girlfriend are playing uh, a game called The Witness, which I highly recommend. And you're solving puzzles in this uh, beautiful virtual world, um, you know, with a with a dot that runs over lines, and there's like pattern recognition, and um, you have to spot some of these. Uh, and now we we sort of see these patterns everywhere, and and want to complete the puzzle in the real world. It's kind of funny. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, you do, and you and you easily dream about it. I mean, all you do is play a lot of Tetris, and you'll see that you're dreaming about it. Yeah. Um, you know, but uh, 
I, I definitely ha used to have, and this was with the original GTA. Uh, I'm 36, and I had a you know a, a computer since the Commodore 64. Um, sure. But when uh, the first GTA came, and it was like a, a view of them from above, not the 3D, you know, more immersive one, uh, and a few other games very similar, where the the, the the whole thing looks the same throughout the game. When I would close my eyes, I would continue to see the the pattern running. Yeah. Like the oh, car absolutely. Moving and, yeah. yeah, that's just. I mean, you can do that with uh, various kinds of flashing lights. Right. Close your eyes, and you see the afterimage. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do wanna, I do wanna ask you about uh, some about the connection between video games and meditation, and and maybe the connection of that to to lucid dreaming. But before that, can you can you speak a little about um, games as a therapy for nightmares, uh, especially with soldiers? I, I know you. Well, that's 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 tricky because. Um, on the one hand, soldiers do game. They game hugely. Mm -hmm. um, they talk about gaming. They'll go. They'll be in battle, and then they'll come back and had them write and tell me, you know, I'm killing real, you know, in battle with real blood. And then I come back and play bloody video games as if I don't have enough violence. They, they're themselves, you yeah. know, puzzled about it. Yeah. Um, but also because it's so pervasive, the enjoyment of of gaming, and particularly first person shooter or combat centric games. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I have one guy wrote and said he's got PTSD and he really wants to game. I think a new COD had come out or something. Yeah. And um, and he said he just can't. It just triggers flashbacks. Mm. So for some, we did one study with the military and we definitely found a difference in nightmare protection. Um, uh, heavier gamers, you know, uh, so the one the one – Dreams I often point to is one from Heavier Gamer where they they can pull the trigger, they're shooting people, they're hitting the targets, they're, they're feeling scared, and it's, it's not like it's happy stuff. Whereas someone who rarely gamed, uh, the, it was a thousand pound trigger pull, they couldn't pull mm. the trigger, they were missing their targets all the time, they had no place to hide, they were powerless. So again, both are distressed. I mean, this is combat, and in a dream you think it's real, but the gamer was empowered. He knew what to do. Yeah, it wasn't like a complete foreign experience, even if it's right. He different. wasn't victimized by it as much as. Not yeah. to say he wasn't distressed. So right. say go play video games in order to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. They do, in fact, uh, in virtual reality labs, they have, like, for instance, virtual Iraq. Has, is a game that's been developed to help treat basically using a version of systematic desensitization where you um, set up a high, hierarchy. So you start out, you're walking through the streets of Baghdad in a safe situation, not holding a weapon, nothing. Uh, and then you gradually increase the similarity to the, you know, the trauma, whatever it is. Uh, and you associate at each level with calming music and, uh, you know, and, and uh, sort of a meditative kind of thing. Uh, and so in that sense, gaming or virtual reality essentially can be um, uh, the, the, uh, the stimuli mm -hmm. rather mm -hmm. than in systematic desensitization, rather than using pictures or photographs or whatever. And it's much more engaging, but they also use it for training. It's a whole lot cheaper to train soldiers in a virtual reality right. um, uh, gaming kind of scenario where they're actually standing still 
and they have guns that that are hooked into the game situation. And the character, and they're wearing the head-mounted goggles, the characters are running around. Um, That's cheaper than putting up buildings, you know, uh, at least in terms of some training. It's a certain point, of course, it's uh, you need more than that. Uh, So, you know, could it be used? Yes, it is being used, but tread cautiously. Yeah. Well, um, I uh, I want to move on to the uh, part about I'm I'm trying to figure out exactly how to, to ask this question because there's definitely a connection between um, lucid dreaming and, and uh, meditation practice and um, mm-hmm. my guess is that different meditation you know practices might result in different uh, capacity or increased capacity for lucidity. Uh, I mean, obviously the the Tibetans have uh, been uh, the Tibetan Buddhists have been uh, working for many, many, many years in cultivating uh, dream awareness and even sleep awareness, supposedly. Um, and you've made a connection, or at least on your, on your podcast, there's an episode where you talk about um, video games as a sort of meditative thing. And I'm curious, yes. I'm curious, one, if there is a, um, like if all types of games create this, or is there a difference, let's say, between you know, a game that just capture, captures your attention for a long span of time and a game that sort of forces you to focus in, in, in so increasing higher uh, or better your capacity to, to, for focused attention, which would influence, in, in my opinion, your ability to lucid dream more, even more spontaneously. Okay, so it depends. There's, there's so many different genres of games, but one of the... the major ways in terms of meditation associations that uh, is useful to classify games is games that are action, first-person shooter mm-hmm. uh, kind of games uh, from casual games. Now, I'm worth dropping out strategic games and a whole lot, okay? Yeah. But casual games are a huge industry. And there's a lot of research that casual games, something like Tetris or Match 3 or Hidden Object, what I play casual games endlessly, <laughs> uh, that casual games are associated with a whole bunch of physiological and psychological variables that are essentially what you see in meditation. The relaxation response, lowered anxiety, uh, lowered depression, uh, just and that's the reason why it's wildly popular. They take your mind off your daily problems just sufficiently. They're not, they don't arouse you. They calm you down. So anyway, that work uh, is fairly well established. Now, on the other hand, you don't get the kind of improvements in attention and spatial skills uh, that in a, a casual game that you get in a first person shooter or some kind of an action game. And so the extent to which you conceptualize meditation as a focused attention, then what you want to do is to look at the first person shooter. I just got, I had an article come out in the very last issue of 2000. What was it? Yeah, I guess it was the last issue of 2015 or maybe first issue of 2016, Journal of Transpersonal Psychology, looking at a research study we did comparing gamers to people who uh, engage in some kind of contemplative practice, uh, prayer that's meditation-like or meditation, and found um, some interesting differences. The attention tasks that we measured uh, was something called change blindness, and the gamers just completely blew them out of the water. Hmm. Now, these are not 30-year monks, you know, meditating in the Himalayas. You know, uh, that, that would probably be a different thing. But among college students, 
Um, then you and you know, we we picked groups where the gamer group did not reported very low prayer and meditation, and the pray and meditation group reported very low gaming. So they were you know mutually exclusive. Uh, but in terms of, for instance, the uh, lucid dreaming, there the pray and meditation did, and we also had a control group that was low on both prayer and low on gaming. Um, and so the uh, the prayer meditation group did better in better in the lucidity, but not at, at, but as I often find, the gaming group did better on better on control. Mm, and there's, there's a bunch of things we looked at, and we've we've now replicated that twice, and we haven't published it yet, but we have some additional uh, data, um, you know, looking at that stuff. That's one of the I got to get to writing it up things. Yeah. So do do you think um, the part of the effects of games on dreams is uh, is is the the focus and or the being sort of uh, while consciously awake immersed in an environment where uh, either you know it's a virtual environment and you're first person or you're playing a, a sort of third person perspective. Which is also common in uh, in in dreams. Uh, it depends on the person, I guess. No, in dreams, third person is not common. First person. In I, dreams, you think you are the dream, the the dream ego. You're in it now. Sometimes you will be third person, where you're watching yourself in the dream, but that's usually associated with what's called witnessing in the uh, TM tradition. Uh, I think you'll also basically see it as as you mature, you re- as you know, and as your self awareness and and uh, and so forth, you become less embedded. Right. I had many many discussions about this with the various TM researchers that I worked with for about a decade when I was in Iowa, and um, you know, I, I mean, particularly Skip Alexander, and um, you know, and he he approached me because I was doing consciousness and sleep research, and he was doing it. Nobody else in Iowa was in the early 1980s. And so um, he, I, you know, he would talk about witnessing, which is, you know, you're in a dream or in asleep, um, but you're watching it. You're not actively engaged. You're not emotionally engaged. You could, you could, you know, step into it. Right. While right. lucidity is an active engagement. Yes, you know, you're dreaming, but you're engaged. So one of the problems is, of course, people get excited and they, they lose the awareness or they wake up. Yeah. Uh, and so it's that detachment, the classic detachment spoken of in the wisdom traditions. The detachment happens in witnessing. It doesn't really happen in lucidity. can happen. You can move from lucidity to witnessing. And I talk about that in, in my book, which is sheer skip. I'm just quoting skip. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so in any case, you, so you, have, you have a variety of skills that are relevant for lucidity Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, and related states that happen in different kind of games under different circumstances. It's a complex relationship and much is yet to be unpacked about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's interesting because I, I didn't know, definitely not of the, off the top of my head, maybe I've read it at some point, but I didn't know the statistics about, um, you know, how common first person versus third person uh, perspective in dreams, whether lucid or not, are. I was just sort of relying uh, intuitively on my own experience, which is, I mean, again, I don't, I don't even know the statistics for myself, but it feels like it's about half and half, whether I'm mm-hmm. lucid or not, that I'm either randomly 
as far as I can tell, either in first person or in third person. And when I am lucid, it's common that I, it will switch wherever the whatever the first one was, it would switch to the other one as soon as I become lucid, which is I don't know why, but a thing that happens it seems. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot there are a lot still to uh, to research and learn uh, about all these phenomena. So mm -hmm. I'm going to let you go. I'm just curious if you're uh, retiring just from teaching or are you going to not continue to do research uh, either? I don't know. Um, Light a little, maybe? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, I'm 70. Um, I don't have to. Uh, I mean, I'll do some, yeah. I, I expect. I have so many studies that I've done <laughs> that I have not written up. Um, I just want to do what's fun. I, I'm, I'm all for it. So I, yeah, you know, it's like, and, and, and most, most of my peers, when they get my age, they don't stop, but you dial it back quite yeah, a lot. Yeah. And that's pretty much what I'm doing. Well, that's, that, that makes uh, perfect sense. And I do wish you uh, good luck and hope to see still st stuff you, uh, you will come up with, uh, in the future, whether, uh, through your own research or collaborations or just input on other stuff that comes out. Um, okay. So, Jane, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate uh, your time, and uh, thanks again. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. So, I hope you've enjoyed this interview, and you can find all the links and show notes on lucidsage.com slash 29. You can, of course, as always, reach me with any questions or feedback uh, directly in email, contact at lucidsage.com, or, of course, on Twitter, as always, at the lucidsage. If you want to support the podcast, you can now do it on patreon.com slash luciddreaming or lucidsage.com slash support with as little as a dollar per episode. Or another way to support the podcast, of course, is to share it on social media and elsewhere and recommend it to friends you think who would like it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and until next time, sweet and lucid dreams.